It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. I've preached a sermon condemning guns to a congregation full of liberal progressives who hate guns. I've never preached a sermon condemning guns to a congregation full of ex-military Christians who are very comfortable with guns and own them, but Kanji Dosha has. Kanji is the senior minister of the La Mesa United Church of Christ, The Table. She's been there for a number of years and has a very interesting perspective on how one steps into the pulpit. She's highly influenced by stand-up comedy, didn't grow up in the church, but brings a unique perspective right into it. I'm excited to introduce her to all of you. She's the guest this week. If you'd like to suggest a guest for Preachers on Preaching, please email me at preachers at christiancentury.org. For now, here's my conversation with the Reverend Kaji Dosha. Kaji, welcome to Preachers on Preaching. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Matt. Excellent. So I'd like to start right away with one of your sermons. Um, It's a sermon that you shared with me that's about guns and kind of about gun control, but really just more about guns. And you told me that this sermon gave you the most, that you were the most afraid before preaching it, as, as opposed to any other sermon you'd ever preached, that you, that you brought some trepidation to the pulpit. Can you talk about why you felt that way in terms of your context and what you had to say in that sermon? Yeah, my heart even quickens thinking about the moment, because, you know, I've got freedom in my pulpit, and people, the church really affirms that I can say whatever I feel called to say, but I was also warned off by a number of people, which in my church could be about 10, who just said, don't touch guns. It's it's too divisive in our community. So of course I had to touch guns and I was getting sick, as all of us are, of, of the constant litany of stories about people shooting, you know, either accidental shootings or these mass shootings. And I felt like I needed to talk about guns and oddly enough, and I think a lot of our colleagues might talk about guns, but for me, I think it's interesting that I'm a gun owner talking about gun control. And I don't know of very many ministers who own up to gun ownership. I think there are lots of us who have them that might not want to tell everybody. And I know I didn't want to tell everybody, but in my context, I thought, owning up to being a gun owner might actually help the rest of my congregation, which is very gun friendly to think about this a little bit differently. How do you explain just contextually the, the gun ownership in your congregation? I'm, this is maybe a naive question, but you're in a liberal progressive setting. My assumption then is those folks don't own guns. So that, how does that happen to what's going on to, to create the culture of gun ownership in La Mesa? Sure. Well, I just, I forget now, but I look at the numbers of people who own guns and I think there are a lot more gun owners than the stereotype of gun ownership. So we might think like super conservative redneck with a gun holster at the top of their car, whatever you call that, you know, driving around in a pickup truck. But for us, we were a lot of ex-military people who 
were trained in in weapons and then often just kept one or two or ten. And so we've got a lot of ex-police officers or ex-law enforcement of various kinds. And then there are the liberals like my husband who allows me to talk about this. He considers this part of my ministry something we're doing together. But anyway, my husband is a Minnesota liberal raised, well, although not raised as a liberal, but raised with rifles and going out and hunting. And as he has gotten older, he's just always had a gun, always had, in our case right now, a shotgun. And you talk to him about it, and he can look at the logic of not owning guns and think, you know, perhaps we should start to think about whether or not we really, all of us really need them. But then he says, what if all the liberals or all the, in his language, sane people keep or give up their guns, and then the only people who are left with them are the ones who we imagine with, you know. Oh, that's interesting. So, premises and so forth. So it's not, he's not keeping a gun so that he can be ready in case the United Nations invades Texas, but rather <laughs> the people who are worried the United Nations are going to invade <laughs> Texas. He doesn't want them to be the only ones with guns. That's right. So where did you come out in this, in this sermon? You, you out yourself as a gun owner in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. I would imagine then building some solidarity with the Christian gun owners in the congregation. Where do you wind up? Yeah. Where does the sermon so go? Where I'm hoping to go with this, and I've been honest with them about my hopes, is that I want a lot of us to re-examine our gun ownership and, and ask ourselves if we really need to have these guns and if we might be willing to reduce the number of people in this part of California and maybe start with us who are willing to turn swords into plowshares and, and offer a different kind of Christian witness, do we want to be led by that sense of fear that we need it because they have it, or we need it because they might come for us, and instead say, we're going to make ourselves potentially vulnerable, but it's in service to a broader concern, which is that gun violence is not acceptable and guns don't necessarily keep us safer. So there's both a sort of theological conviction, but also a kind of logical claim that you're making, too. In that sermon, you cite a lot of studies around the, the danger to children in homes that have guns. And you do wind up saying at the conclusion of the sermon that to be a gun owner is to be in contradiction to the teaching of Christ. You, you lay it out pretty baldly. Yeah. How did that go over? <laughs> Not well, but I think... It goes over better if I can say, and I myself am living in contradiction to the teachings of Christ. There's no way I would imagine Jesus holding the, the, you know, whatever that time period equivalent of a gun might be. I just don't see him doing that, and I see so many examples of him telling us we can't either. So, no, I mean, the most, I, I think the most remarkable story for our contemporary nightmare that we've got going here in America with guns is, when Jesus is arrested and Peter grabs yeah. a sword and cuts the guy's ear off and Jesus tells him to put it away. I mean, to me, that feels about as direct an analog as we could ever hope to receive. It is an exact replica, or at least as close as we can get. And, and we have to trust that whatever this moment of violence is in which we might be incited to pull out a gun, that there's an alternative. You said a moment ago that your husband allowed you to share his perspective on this, his background, his story, and that was a part of your ministry together. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and you also in that same sermon in a in a powerful way delve into your own history growing up in a community with a lot of gun violence and gun ownership and you tell the story of uh, as an adolescent having boyfriends who would show you their scars yeah. from being shot which is just an amazingly disturbing and very real set of images is it typical for you to to mine your own experience that heavily and and to take it into the pulpit yeah i i wondered if you were going to ask me about that because i'm sort of ashamed that the answer to that is yes i draw so much on on stories and i try to figure out how to do it in a way that isn't dishonoring or betraying the trust of whoever else i might allude to and i tend not to talk about them by name or so forth. But yeah, I do draw on my own experience, mostly because I very frequently have pretty tough messages. And it can be what I've learned through the years of preaching is that it can often feel like I'm ramming an idea down someone's throat or making them feel badly for who they are. And so I tend to start, especially when I've got a tough message with, I'm center number one right with you. I don't have this right either. Let me give you a great example of a way that I'm screwing this up too, but we're all mm. screwing up and we need to reflect on that together. So it tends to be that when I'm going to a point of sort of prophetic vision, if I'm going to try to do that, I've got to start confessionally. And so, yeah, in that way I do tend to draw on, on personal images. Why, why ashamed? Why am I ashamed of that? Cause there's so much that I do in my preaching but if you took me back to my preaching class at Yale Divinity School, I would be violating like 75% maybe of the rules. I still read the Bible before every time I preach and every time I prepare my words. But otherwise, I think I break every rule they taught me. Have you felt as an African-American biracial woman in the pulpit of predominantly Anglo churches, have you felt like you had to overcome layers of resistance to being heard? No. I mean, there's something to overcome, but I don't think it's so much resistance to being heard. I would say it's almost even the opposite, where I can, I, you'll hear about the magic black person trope, where you're expected yeah. to sort of show up and entertain. And so I recognize that people are going to expect that from me, and I, I will do that. And I take advantage of that moment or that expectation to, I hope, put in some powerful words that I'm inspired to preach. So you can exploit that. I, I think I do exploit it, absolutely, especially when it's a new audience. If it's my congregation where I've been for some, if it's a congregation where I've been rooted for some time, then I think it's not as much necessary, but it's absolutely part of, of what happens when I first step into a pulpit. That's really, that's really interesting to think of, of taking that and turning it in some way and playing with it. Let me ask you, Kanji, about the gifts you bring into the pulpit. What is it that you are equipped with um, that make you a good preacher? I find it very helpful that I didn't grow up listening to sermons and I didn't grow up going to church much. Mm. Occasionally I went to my grandfather's church, but I've in my house we listened to LP's records of comedians. And so I listen as a kid, I'm hearing all of Richard Pryor and all of his work and Bill Cosby and all these people. 
and while I don't try to be funny that much in the pulpit, because that can fall so flat when you're trying, I do, I think, draw more on a comedic rhythm in my preaching, and it's very improvisational, and it's planned but free. I, I find that much more satisfying. So I think that I draw a lot on not so much church in at least my preparation and delivery. That makes me a bit of a different preacher. Then I would say that I, I don't hear everybody else's stories as I'm preparing my own understanding or I hope informed understanding of the scriptures. So I tend to take, I tend to take a, a read that maybe I haven't heard before, although I'm not hearing that many voices. I don't know how to explain that part as much, but I think if I hear you properly, what you're saying is you're not carrying around in your head the influence of, you know, 12, 15, 20, 30 other preachers that you grew up hearing, but rather you're sort of stepping to the task with a fresh orientation. Yeah, exactly. So while there is quite a bit to be gained from having that, that grounding in really solid preaching, if you have it, I think in my case, since I don't, I have to take advantage of what I do have and what I was formed to hear and listen to. And that's not so much churchy, which is why the groups that I tend to be most successful in reaching are not exactly churched folk. Mm. My, my, my most, uh, my, my greatest points of connection in terms of demographic are for religious nuns and, uh, folks who tend to call on being spiritual and not religious and so forth. Not because I, I find that to be true for myself, but just because they're my people. That's a gift right now, though. I mean, that, yeah. that's a very fertile mission field that you've been given. It's probably, especially in Southern California. Yeah, absolutely. It's really, really helpful because I can understand why there's suspicions of church, and I share some of those suspicions. I also share a lot of love and respect for the possibilities of the institution, but I very rarely see them living up to what they can. So in the preaching moment, I feel that I'm joining the frustrations and the desires of folks who just really want to figure out how to follow Jesus. And I'm I'm saying, I'm trying to figure this out too. Let's do this together. Do you still listen to comedians? Oh yeah, absolutely. Who who do you, any, anybody having an influence on you in the pulpit right now? Well, I'll tell you who I really appreciate. Yes, Chris Rock, definitely, I would say. But I also really appreciate Louis C.K. Mm. And I try not to go as dark as he does, obviously. But I think that the way that he can draw out the arc of a story and get at little bits of, of wonder and amazement is just so inspiring for a way to approach Scripture. And and discipleship. It's it's just amazing. I, I love Louis C.K. There's really a way in which those people can... William Willimon said this to me in one of these interviews, that if he were in Chicago, he wouldn't be spending his time in church. He would be... I mean, to learn how to preach, he would be going to Second City and going yeah. to the comedy clubs. And, and the way in which a really good comic can capture a room, can bring a whole world to life, just with words and stories... It is preaching. I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's the closest thing to preaching that, that I've seen. Absolutely. And I really have enjoyed watching Jerry Seinfeld's uh, coffee, I forget what he calls it, the coffee chat oh. that he does. 
Oh, yeah, where he drives around in a car and interviews yeah. a comedian. Yeah. Exactly. So that, that also is getting at how the comedians form what they're doing. And so much of comedy is coming from tragedy and, and like I said, really dark places that they find a way to, to incorporate some wonder and joy and laughter. And isn't that also a lot of what we do in church? So, I think that's, that's, that's such a truth right there. You have a sermon that you wrote about or preached about, I mean, it's this horrible story of this man oh, yeah. in the early 1900s who was Congolese, right? And brought over to the, to the Brooklyn Zoo. Is that, am I remembering this right? Or the Bronx the Zoo? Bronx. Yeah. Or what, it, what became the Bronx Zoo. Yeah. So this man who is brought over and put in a cage and is in like the ape house of the zoo. Yeah. And you, in the sermon, you tell this story, which is all, you know, on the historical record, you're quoting from the New York times. And then you stop in the middle of that story. And it's like, I mean, I was, I didn't hear you preach it. I read your, your notes and I felt myself just overwhelmed with you know, the tragedy of existence. And then you say, then you quote, Paul, right? And you, what's the line that, that from Paul that you used? Um, are we, are we starting to feel good about ourselves? Are we congrat? Are we affirming ourselves too much? Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and it was, it was devastating. But also in that moment, right? So you tell this horrible story, and then you use this line of Paul's to sort of he states in in its original context to like pop the bubble of human self satisfaction. Um, and then from there, you try to connect us to God who both indicts and loves us. And just, you did what you just said very powerfully in that sermon, I thought, where you go about as dark as is possible in terms of what we're capable of doing to each other on a macro level, at least in that story. Micro level, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you turn toward something that's promising, not something that's funny the way a comedian would, but, but something that is got beauty in it. That was really well done. I thought. Thank you. That was so hard. That was another sermon that was very difficult to preach. I was reading an article this morning, just about birth of a nation and the movie that's coming out uh, that's at Sundance right now. And it's another reflection on slavery. And the author said something like, I'm sick of movies about slaves. And and just that black people have other stories to tell, too. And I think that her point in the article was just that we spend so much time hearing one particular way of of experiencing black history. And the problem with that for black people is that we feel it viscerally. And I don't know what other people feel, so I can only speak for myself. I felt that so viscerally as I preached about the story of Otabanga and living in a monkey house. And I, I use the litany of the phrase, uh, this is a man, I think something like, and remember that this was actually a man just because yeah. it, it, the ways that we are so capable even now of making people into something other than human and, and making choices based on that. Like is someone's life worth living? We, if there's something other than human in our minds, then perhaps not. And then they can die in wars that we bring to them or whatever. I, I don't know. It it was devastating to preach this sermon. It was very, very difficult. But it didn't end. It wasn't like pure, I mean, obviously lamentable story, 
but your sermon was more than lament. Yeah. Um, I mean, you sort of, you told the story of how the guy got freed, right? It was yeah. church people, churches, clergy people, and from the South even, right? Wasn't that, I mean, it's kind of a remarkable part of the story. It wasn't New York churches that, that brought this to an end. It was nationally. Right. No, that's right. And that's, that's just it is that I have to believe, and I, I honestly wouldn't feel comfortable getting in the pulpit if I didn't believe that there were a way in every single corner of the universe to find God in whatever experience. And so looking historically on the story, there were people who recognized how long this was. And sometimes you can just get so caught in, in your normal place and not realize how screwed up the things are around you and how you actually have a role you can play in making them better. Giving, I think, concrete examples is better than just saying, do this. Because yeah. a lot of times we just don't know how. So that was a and historical s- example. So your church or one's church, a church, an individual can be that contradictory voice that, you know, that, that thing that you look back upon when you read history and are just devastated by how awful it is. There are always dissenting voices. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was great. Um, you didn't grow up in the church. You wound up a preacher. Uh, what went wrong? <laughs> how'd, you get, how'd you wind up in the pulpit? How'd you move from uh, Richard Pryor to, uh, to Sunday morning? Well, Thankfully, I've been able to bring Richard Pryor with me. May he rest in peace. But what went wrong, I would say, the short answer, of course, is God. But the longer answer in terms of call is I just found myself in a number of places that added up to ministry. And I just wasn't, it wasn't quite the right fit in all those things. So I get out of college and I'm 20 years old. And I go work on Wall Street. And... I loved it. There was something, I just just feel it in the air as I'd step off the subway, I'd come up the stairs and just feel the power. And I loved it. And I stayed in that work for a while, but then 9-11 happened. Mm. And that dark spot was overwhelming to me for all kinds of reasons, including that I didn't go to work that day. I was busy helping my aunt run for office. I wound up with guilt around that, but I wasn't there. I wasn't in New York. I wasn't in the city for this life-changing event. And and something, it took me to a really dark place. And I started to examine my work. And after some time, I said, you know, I love what I'm doing, but it doesn't help anybody. It never even occurred to me that I should be helping anyone because that wasn't the track my life was on. So it took some time before I got to ministry. And I went in politics and I went into nonprofit work. And eventually I heard a voice say to me, you should be doing that as I watched the ministers prepare the table to, for communion. And I said, okay, and sort of instantly doors open and everything didn't become great, but it became possible. So that Did was, you feel once you made that decision, when you, when you were in church and you had that thing sort of fall into place, experience that click, did was there then subsequent journey to ordination an affirmation of that moment or or did your sense of call sort of grow more powerful and stronger as you as you pursued preaching 
I, I was very apologetic about my sense of call for quite some time. I, I felt guilty or like it couldn't really be true. And I didn't tell a lot of people outright. I didn't tell my parents even that I thought I wanted to be a minister. I just told them I was going to divinity school or to the Institute of Sacred Music more specifically. So in part because I wasn't really willing to admit it to myself quite yet. I, I was taking the steps as if maybe I'll do it if I get there. But until I had a sense of what it actually mean, meant to be a minister, I wasn't really prepared for that. I don't know how to explain that. To, you weren't prepared to talk about it publicly, or you weren't yeah. prepared to acknowledge to yourself that that's where you were headed? Both. Both, Both. yeah. Yeah. I think there's something fairly typical about that. And my, I mean, it resonates with my experience. I remember I was in divinity school for two years before I was, you know, I sort of realized, Oh, I'm going to wind up as a minister, I guess. Um, I mean, it wasn't, I don't mean to sound like it was this act of resignation. I was thrilled, but I sort of had to admit it to myself somehow. Um, which is, and I was funny. I was just talking to this woman the other day who's in her second year in divinity school. And she was saying, you know, I'm thinking maybe I might. And it's, it makes me wonder like, are there people in medical school who are like heading toward their residency, deciding to become doctors? <laughs> yeah, probably are. A hundred thousand dollars later. It's, yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, they can, yeah. they can count on paying off their student loans a little more quickly. Oh, yeah. uh, um, if you weren't, a minister, if you weren't a preacher, how do you think your own faith or spiritual life would be different? Hmm. Well, I was definitely seeking before I went into ministry. I think I still would be. What was hard, and this actually really drives my sense of what my call is or what my work is, what was hard was to find a place where I could find other people who were in along the same journey. It was very, very difficult. Here I was in New York City feeling called to follow God, and there are, like, churches on every block, so where do you start? I think I probably would, without the power of being able to create community, not know where to find it. And that was incredibly spiritually frustrating, and it leads me so much, drives me so much in my ministry now, because I think, what about the people like me who are so deeply yearning for this and have no idea where to go for it. Let me try to offer them something. And a lot of why our church is growing is because of these little conversations I have where I out myself as a minister and I have to deal with, there's always, I don't know if you have this, but for me, when I do tell people what I do, there's like this moment of, of horror where I'm waiting to see what the response will be. And, um, and most of the time, it's favorable, and that's where that's what's really been growing our our growth. I mean, driving our growth here. Being that's out great. There. Yeah. So you don't you you prepare a manuscript, but you don't preach off of it. Is that right? You said that you were right. earlier. You said you have an improvisational style. Yep. So, what role does the manuscript do your notes outline? What role are they playing on a Sunday morning when you're preaching? Yeah, I would say there's a, a form of memorization I do. I'm perfectly capable of having a conversation. So I try to memorize the conversation I want to be having with the congregation. So in other words, like what are the general things I'm hoping that we talk about in that time? And I, if you listen to me, and I guess my folks go back and a lot of them will read 
the sermon, the manuscript later, what they wind up saying is that I do stay pretty faithful to it, but I'm not sure I do. Uh, I never know in the moment. I, mm. I you're do. not conscious of whether or not you're deviating from the manuscript while you're preaching. Yeah, not too much. Not that conscious of it. And I, in a lot of ways, I want to. Like, I do a lot more of my exegesis in the moment, or at least that exegetical discussion in the sermon itself, rather than as much in the written text. So I do all my research. I think it through. I write out the sermon. But if you go through my sermons, you might not see all that much of my... Uh, biblical exegesis. And it's not because I'm not doing it. It's just because I really, really like doing that with them. And it turns more into more like a Bible study conversation because we're in a small enough group that we can. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. Do you, you're a good writer. So do you feel then when you're moving off of the written word into oral expression, do you feel like you're sacrificing some artistry? Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I miss, and that's why I don't do, as if you look at some of my older sermons from way back in the day, the turn of phrase is much more beautiful. Now, I don't even bother with that because I know I'm not going to be able to say it. So, I, I think I used to really be in love with my words, and that would make the whole experience a lot more frustrating and stressful because I would really want to get that phrase right in a memorized sermon. And that, I think, is, is much harder, and I don't necessarily, from week to week, have the memory for that. So instead, I just remember the general sentiment that I want to give or the direction I want to go in, and that, that helps quite a bit. It, it so just do you feel like you've off. had to sacrifice some—eloquence is the wrong word, but sacrifice some poetry in order to be more clear? Yeah, I think there are some brilliant people who can do both really well. And I think that I'm getting better at the poetry in the moment. Because here's the thing, if I wrote it, then I can say it too, but I just have to be working at constantly at shaping my words more poetically. But then again, sometimes if you do, you might lose some of the ability of people to understand them. That's always So you didn't grow up in a tradition that was telling you preach this way or preach that way, and you've said that you have disregarded much of what you learned in divinity school around how to preach. So where did the desire to preach extemporaneously or to preach improvisationally rather than being bound to a manuscript, where did that come from? Well, that evolved. So I was definitely trained as a manuscript preacher at Yale, but as I got years away from that, initially it happened when one day when I lost my sermon and I had to preach anyway. That oh, happened nightmare. <laughs> exactly. It's the, it is the nightmare. And that happened in Wellesley, and it wasn't the worst thing, and it might be one of the better sermons I preached there. So then, when I got to New York City and I'm doing this jazz ministry, I would stand up and I would preach from a manuscript, and I'm nervous because this is a Lutheran church, and they really care about biblical preaching, and I would get terrible, nasty emails if, if I preached something people didn't like. So I was really, really, I felt a lot of pressure, but as I would stand there to read a sermon— and then the musicians would get up and just go in all kinds of beautiful directions in the music that they would do with this great discipline of ensemble. And then I'm reading from, you know, prayers out of the book and so forth. I realized that there was such a disjointed nature between the words and the music that I had to change who I was in that space, that I was performing more like a musician. So and, they were playing free and without a net yep. or without a score, and you were contradicting the 
yep. the mood that they were establishing or the risks they were taking. Yeah, and it almost felt like the words on the page were a block to the Holy Spirit, who was obviously much more active in what the musicians were doing than what I was doing. So That's really interesting. So it, part of the reason I'm pushing you on this is because I'm experiencing this tension in my own life all of a sudden after 15 years wow. of carefully articulated, beautiful little sentences that I try to craft. And we're at one of, we have two worship services, and one of them is with a jazz trio who do exactly what you're describing. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think now I know I can blame it on them. Yes. Blame really the something. Holy Spirit who shows up in beautiful ways with jazz. Yeah. 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 Um, that's great. Um, well, I wanted to ask you, do you place yourself in a particular theological camp? Do you think of yourself as a, as a liberal Protestant, as a liberationist, as a Calvinist, Lutheran? Do you, do you track into a specific theological camp? Yes. I mean, I, I just feel like I track into so many of them. So yes, to all those. I would say I, I find myself a theological pro- progressive for sure, but I also find myself having some evangelical tendencies, particularly in worship experience. Like I really care about giving people the t- tingle factor in worship and the sort of choreography that has to be assigned to that and being really, really biblically and scripturally grounded. So which also then, of course, does track through a lot of other traditions, too, particularly, you know, my experience in the Lutheran Church, which my church was very high church in the morning and then jazz night. And I really, really find such comfort in the Lutheran liturgies. So I I find myself, and yeah, I I love Calvin. I, I, I probably, I joke about not being able to understand Barton, but I just love the Reformed tradition, and I do understand Bart somewhat after three readings, but I draw <laughs> myself, you know, I feel like I find inspiration in all these places. Kaji, thank you so much for this conversation. It's really been, as you can tell, fun for me and uh, your congregation's lucky to have you. That's for sure. Oh, thank you. And same to yours. I, I hear great things about what you're up to out there in Chicago. And yeah, I'd love to come visit sometime. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thornby.